and turn to Revelation chapter 3. I hope that Denny's testimony encourages you whenever you're talking with someone and find yourself disagreeing with them that the place that we go is the Word of God. Because if it's simply our opinions, then whoever has the best debating skills and the strongest opinion wins. And uh, I can tell you I was scared out of my mind when I told him that his baptism before God was not biblical baptism. And I was like, well, there goes that church attender. But we look at the Word of God and we say, what does it say? And we humble ourselves under it. We build our lives on the rock. This is what Scripture, Jesus called this the rock. When you build your life on the Word of God and not simply on opinions. So let's ask Him to build our lives today. Father, build us firmly planted on Your Word. As we come to the churches in Revelation, um, it's really easy to judge from the outside and say, oh man, well, thank goodness we're not like that. Yet so often, um, in each one of these stories, I've seen some of this in my own life. Some sleepiness, some um, a, of a lack of love. And so I pray that you'd wake us up today. That, you, that maybe there's, there's a situation in here, God, where you need to wake us up to our own sin. Maybe it's just our own complacency that's begun to happen in our marriage, in our parenting, in our love for you, in our, in our devotion to you, in our love for others. Wake us up to that. I pray for other churches who are gathering right now that you would fill their preachers with your, your spirit to communicate your word effectively and that you would use your word in our lives to cut through the sin in our life, but also show us Christ that we would not leave defeated, but that we would leave saying faith is the victory in Christ. There's no guilt in life because of Christ. There is no fear in death because of Christ. There is hope in life because of Christ, not because I'm such a good person. And so I pray that today as we look at this text, we would not simply try to conform outwardly, that we try to just get our outward act together, but that you would renew us from the inside and that it would bear fruit on the outside and that it would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you have ever fallen asleep on the job, but oftentimes in cartoons, they make fun of guards who are asleep on the job. And of course, the bad guys know right when to sneak by the guard who is asleep. But that kind of became a parable from the city of Sardis. Sardis was an incredibly uh, well-positioned city. They had huge walls, and the back of their walls were actually leaning up against this massive steep cliff. They were considered impregnable and unconquerable, and they were conquered twice. One time in Sardis's history, a guard had lost his helmet over the wall, and he climbed down, and he left the city, exited the wall, and he climbed down the cliff, fetched his helmet, and walked back. Unbeknownst to him, there was a general of an opposing enemy team watching him and said, Aha! I know how to get into this city. And at night, he snuck his entire army up the steep cliffs in the back where the guards had fallen asleep and stopped paying attention. And he conquered the city. That actually ended up happening twice in their history. And it's like, well, why didn't they learn from their past? Well, it happened in 546 B.C. with Cyrus. Cyrus conquered the city. And then again, by Antiochus Epiphanes. You remember him? 
No, 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 sorry. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered. Do you know how many hundreds of years that separated? Quick question for us. What lessons have we learned from church history 300 years ago? And is there any threat to the church right now that maybe 300 years ago the church faced? That's a good question for us to think about. And church, church of Sardis, Jesus says you become like your city and you've fallen asleep. And as I studied, I kept noticing the theme, and it was laziness due to overconfidence. It was not simple laziness, but laziness due to overconfidence. One student of the text considered, used phrases like impregnable. They had failed caution. There was careless negligence. They were surprised by the attack. They were self-confident, and they failed to watch. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You remember that verse? Why was Sardis so confident, though? The church of Sardis had become like the city. Sardis was a church that we'd probably love to go to. There was no major doctrinal issues like the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans hadn't snuck in. There's no major doctrinal issues. There was once in a ton of sexual immorality being promoted. There was no idol worship, no major fights in the church, no debt, no problems with the pastor, and no opposition from the, ta- in, from the town. In fact, nothing was really happening at all. And that was the problem. The church was asleep. And in this text, I see four alarms for sleeping churches. How do we know if we're a sleeping church? I think there are four alarms in here and four responses that we should have. Sadly, too many churches hit the snooze button. Anyone in here a snoozer? Ever hit the snooze button? In college, I remember being in college, and it was amazing how many alarms some college guys could go through. And I'm like, I am down the hall from you, and your alarm is waking me up. (laughs) Get out of bed! (laughs) I have become a snooze person occasionally but i don't even use an alarm right now but what are alarms so we we don't want to be a sleeping church amen we don't want to be a sleeping church what are some alarms we got to watch out for alarm number one your reputation is better than reality huge alarm if your reputation is better than your reality says in verse one to the angel of church in sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars that means that god controls the church god shuts down a church and God can remove a pastor, he has that power. And he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Their reputation didn't match their reality. If you think of reputation, reputation is what others think you are. Reality is what God knows you are. There's an old saying, when when small men cast large shadows, you know that the sun is setting. Think about that. Jesus says that this church had a good reputation. We don't know exactly what it meant, but Wearsby believes that this is a warning to great churches that live on past glory. Have you ever heard of or do you know of any great churches that are closed today? Churches that were once prospering, churches that were once full, churches that were once examples to the rest of the town or the state or the country, these big churches that are now closed or a fraction of what they used to be. I've sat in a church that could seat 450 and ended up having to close. And that can happen when, when we remember the good old days. You remember the saying, what is the good old days? The good old days is a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. <laughs> and Jesus says, be careful. If I were picturing the crowd 
at Sardis, here's how I imagine them to be. If I could step aside from the podium, I, I would. <laughs> I imagine the members of Sardis would get a good morning nap during the message and then tell the preacher it was a great sermon. Pass out, and they're like, oh, that was great! And then they just leave. When Jesus was on earth, he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because outwardly they had it together, but inwardly they were a mess. So alarm number one, your reputation is better than reality. Alarm number two, the godly are the minority. The godly are the minority. It says in verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains. Some translation actually has those who remain and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. I personally believe what remains is the godly. Because if you go down to verse 4, it says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis who has not soiled their garments. So I think what remains in this text is that there is a godly minority in the church. And that's one of the beautiful things about any church is you almost always have some godly there. No matter how low the church gets, how small the church gets, there's almost always someone who desperately wants to love God and love their neighbor. They desperately want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and serve Him faithfully. And what a privilege that is. But what had happened is they had become the minority and the church had stopped focusing on them. David said in Psalm 16, My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, but the godly in this church were what remains and is about to die. When Peter betrayed Jesus, he was told, When you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. They needed strengthening. When Jesus was in the tomb, Peter had to strengthen the other disciples. Can you imagine what that conversation was like as they're all gathered around here? Jesus is dead. They're like, we thought he was going to live. We thought he was going to be conquering, and now he's dead. What in the world? Do you think Peter said, guys, you know what he told us. You know what he told us. We're scared, yes, but you know what he told us. Because remember when the report came that Jesus might still be alive? Who's one of the first two to run? Peter. Why? I think he had begun to strengthen what remains. I think getting called Satan was really good for him. I wonder how many Christians would turn around their life if they got called Satan once. But I can't know if... <laughs> I can't know that, so I'm not going to call it to you. Let, let the Word of God call it at you sometimes. But Peter strengthened what remained, and that's what needed to happen here. Paul was called to strengthen the Roman church, and he sent Timothy to strengthen the Thessalonian church. So we get this idea over and over again that the church constantly needs strengthening, and especially the godly. I wonder how many churches there are where godly people come hungry to pray, to worship, and to hear the word of God, and they leave empty. How many churches, even in our fellowship, but does that happen? One author challenged me when they said, the church does not grow by addition, but by nutrition. They told a story of a, uh, a godly elderly lady. She came in ready to hear the word of God, and the pastor got up to preach on, and he, and he gave his outline. The lady just, her heart fell because it was just a, a, an intellectual conversation and had nothing to do with how do we live, how do we love the Lord. So if the godly are the minority in your church, or if the godly are looked down on, then you're in trouble. I heard of a church one time where a, a young pastor came in, and the church was an, an aging congregation. He said, we're going to turn this church around, we're going to get young families. And said, okay, great, we want to see young families. How are we going to do that? And he said, all of you 50 and above, I want you to leave for two years so we can get this church more uh, hip. And in two years, you can come back. You notice I have not done that. In my Bible, it says, let the older women teach the younger women how to love their husbands. We need every age. And we need those who are older and love the Lord to be teaching the younger generation to care enough for him. 
Guess what? You have seen more life than I have. And you've also seen more of God's faithfulness than I have. You've been through anything difficult in your life that maybe a young person is going through for the first time? Strengthen what remains. Alarm number three, the gospel is taken for granted. The gospel is taken for granted. Verse three, he says, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. And I believe what he has received is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eternal life is the gift that we receive. and It's not a goal that we work towards. Turn with me to John chapter one, verse 12. Let's look at this text together. John chapter one, verse 12. This is why I think that um, salvation and the gift of the gospel is what they had received. John chapter 1, verse 12, you're following along in a chair Bible that is within arm's reach. The black Bible is in front of you. It's page 886. 886. Again, we're saying that eternal life is a gift that we receive, not a goal that we work towards. John chapter 1, verse 12. We'll start back in verse 11. He came to his own. This is speaking of Jesus. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born again by the gift of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's why in the song that we sang, it said that the thief rejoiced to see the shed blood of Christ for him. His righteousness was from Christ, not from anything he did. But the gospel had been taken for granted. When you receive Christ Jesus, you receive a new future, which is heaven, a new status, which is child of God, a new standing, which is justified, adopted, reconciled, regenerated. And in that sense, we have received a trust. Now, when you think of the word trust fund, baby, what image comes to your mind? Is it a positive image or a pretty negative image? When I think of trust fund baby, the first thing I think is a college student driving a Porsche. <laughs> I'm like, that does not fit. <laughs> you should not be driving a Porsche in college. Um, because if you've made that much money, you've probably realized you don't need college. <laughs> and so when we think of a trust fund baby, we think of a spoiled brat. Well, guess what? Back in Revelation chapter 3, when he says what you have received, it's the Greek idea of a trust. The gospel is a trust that's given to us. Have we ever taken for granted the gospel? The fact that we are reconciled to God? That we, can, we, we, we get to go to heaven because of the righteousness of Christ? We, are, we have become moved from enemies of God to friends of God? We take that for granted all the time. And that's something we must be aware of. A trust, listen, think about this. A trust is a costly gift that someone is set up for the benefit of another. Isn't it? A trust is a costly gift that someone is set up for the benefit of another. The general principle that we think of, the general picture we think of with trust fund kids is kids who are spoiled. And Jesus says, remember what you have received. The church in Sardis was glad that they were going to heaven, but they weren't working to help others go. One commentary said, it's when the church leaders and members get accustomed to their blessings and complacent about the ministry that the enemy finds his way in. When we get accustomed to our blessings and complacent in our ministry. How much better it is when we share the gospel instead of hoarding it. So alarm number one, your reputation doesn't match reality. And alarm number two, the guy of the year, the minority. Alarm number three, the gospel is taken for granted. Alarm number four, there's no victory. Verse five, he says, to the one who conquers. The idea is we are supposed to be conquering. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith, Right? 
You are called to be conquering. You remember the verse in 1 Corinthians? No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Why? So that you're, you're conquering it. There is no mention of anything opposing this church. Have you noticed that? I didn't catch that at first when I first read through it. There's no enemy opposing this church. The most persecuted church in, our, in Revelation 2 and 3 was the most praised church. And when a church stops conquering, perhaps it's because they've stopped fighting. The impression, one commentator says, the impression is that the assembly in Sardis was not aggressive in its witness to the city. There was no persecution because there was no invasion of the enemy's territory. No friction usually means no motion. The unsaved in Sardis saw the church as a respectable group of people who were neither, listen to this, they were neither dangerous nor desirable. There were decent people, they were decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. And actually, someone recently asked me the question, what is it that makes our church desirable? From the outside, what do you say? What, what is there that is missing elsewhere? Is it obvious? There was no victory. So I don't want to leave you with just the, the negative. It's actually really easy. I don't know if you know this about preaching. I'm going to just give you a little behind the curtain. It is way easier to diagnose than it is to cure. <laughs> it's way easier to say, here's the problem. And you're like, okay, well, <laughs> give me something. So what are, what are the responses? What if, what if you find these things as reality in your own life or in the church you go to? What are some responses that we get from the text? Number one, face reality. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains, face reality. What is it they needed to wake up to? I personally think that Sardis had become self-indulgent and a fleshly church. Their preferences and the preferences of the populace outweighed the priorities of God. It was more about what gets me in the least amount of trouble instead of what glorifies God. What is it that most of the people in the church want instead of what glorifies God? and honors God. Self-indulgence is excessive or unrestrained gratification of one's own appetites, desires, or whims. Now, get your Bibles out, get your thumbs ready, because we're going to be moving quick here. Here's why I think they were a fleshly church. I'm going to argue it from the text. First of all, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. This is why I think they were fleshly because over and over again in Scripture, there's a contrast of life and death. Those who are alive, because he says, wake up, strength to what remains. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, are all the members in the church dead physically? No. So what, what, there's something here of alive and dead that we have to connect. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, he says this. She who is self-indulgent is dead while she lives. So there we have the same idea again. Turn over. To Luke chapter 15 verse 32 Luke chapter 15 verse 32 a passage that at any time in your life when you have struggled with feeling far from God you have probably run to and been encouraged by it's the parable of the son who went off and squandered his his father's wealth ran away this is page 875 if you're following along in a chair Bible Luke chapter 15, verse 32, the father goes out to the oldest son. The oldest son is throwing a fit. He's like, why? This, this guy, he does nothing. My brother does nothing. He's an idiot. I've served you this whole time. Why are you praising him? 
And the father says, it is fitting, verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, how, what do we know about the brother? Is that verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took it a on a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. He was self-indulgent. He was living for whatever pleased him. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing um, to study money and how it affects people. It's been said, and I don't remember the quote exactly, but basically, your, your richness is not how much you have, but how much you can live without. Or what happens to you when you get money. Have you ever watched someone win the lottery and then all of a sudden their life falls apart? Okay. We've got to keep going. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. And again, what I'm trying to prove here is that the church had become fleshly, just not in the way that we typically think of it. We typically think of fleshly as sexual immorality. We think of some major sexual sin. We think of drunkenness. We think of um, overindulgence. It could be drug addiction. We think of all sorts of different moral failings. But I think their self-indulgence was simply, I want a preacher that preaches this long about this, makes me feel good, and I can leave without it. I want the church to function like this. I want the services like this. And they become self-indulgent. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. He says this. This is page 944 in your chair Bible. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. But if you live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Look, turn over to Romans chapter 13. We'll kind of close here. I hope I've made my argument clear from Scripture. Romans 13, verse 11 Romans 13, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Oh, that's 12. Let's go to 11. Besides this, page 948. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. There's the same idea. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Samson lived for the flesh. Saul lived for the flesh. And David's worst moments were when he was fleshly. And in both cases, death ensued. So here's a summary idea of what I'm trying to say. When the fleshly person, how do we, how do we heal from this when the fleshly person prays to the father of life and trusts in the bread of life and submits to the spirit of life and obeys the word of life it produces the light of life what is it what is it if you wake up you're like i'm fleshly i'm living in my flesh we need to not try to go back to the flesh to get over the flesh have you ever done that do you understand what i'm saying sin is in your life you're living by your desires. And God wakes you up and says, you're far from me. And your sin has caused a separation. And you say, okay, I just need to read my Bible for half an hour. I need to never do this. I need to never do that. I need to never do this. I need to never do that. And all of a sudden, you just have this huge list that Paul says does absolutely no good in curbing the flesh. So when the fleshly person wakes up and they pray to the Father of life, they trust in the bread of life. They submit to the spirit of life and obey the word of life. It produces the light of life in their life. On Monday, the deacons and I looked at an evaluation where we are as a church. 
and we scored in the plateauing category, and we turned it into an area of prayer, and in our Wednesday night prayer team, we also prayed for it. And if you're interested in looking at the review, you can talk to me, I can get that to you. But I realized that it's possible that some of us are waking up and you're like, hey, I don't, I'm glad that you're waking up to an evaluation of your church, but maybe you're waking up and seeing a death in your marriage or a death in your finances or a death in your job or a death in your dreams or even a relationship with God. Face reality, but consider to see if this is true. The flesh got you here and it won't get you out. I've counseled married couples whose selfishness is tearing them apart and they come in and they usually hope that I agree with one of their selfishness. <laughs> they walk in and they say, I'm right and I've been selfish and our marriage is falling apart and I just need you to agree with my selfishness. I'm like, no, we need God to change us. So face reality. Those trapped in sin often try to attack the flesh with the flesh and it doesn't work. So if you're drowning under financial load, stop and ask, have I spent on the flesh and what does it cost me? Let's get back to the church. When a church wakes up to living in the flesh, often the temptation is new programs, getting rid of old programs, but the church is a body, not a machine. And as I honestly looked at our evaluation, my mind immediately went to, what can we do to become a mothering church? But no amount of perfect programming can bring life to a church. No amount of well-oiled machine can bring life to a church. The church is called a body, not a machine. The church is called... A machine, all we'd have to do is have the right programs and you could have a thriving church. But it's a body, so guess what? We need thriving people. That's why we actually emphasize person, personal reading of the Word of God. Because it says when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. Paul said that the church is built up when each member is working together well. And so, in a very real sense, your spiritual life affects the body life. I wasn't, well, you ever stubbed your pinky toe? You get the idea. <laughs> my pinky toe has, oh, well, I'll just use my own broken pelvis. How about that? <laughs> I have three spots that are broken in my body, and it has radically affected my life the last nine weeks. Okay, so wake up to reality. Number two, strengthen the faithful. Complete in this, back in our text, Revelation chapter 3. Complete means to fill a net or to fill a hole in a, in a hollow spot on a board. When Ems and I built that tree fort in our yard, we picked up our own trees, we milled them, we let them dry, and then we took them out to Denny's for cutting. Some of the boards had hole in them and they needed epoxy so that they would be strong enough. They were incomplete. That's the idea here. There was definitely a board there, but it wasn't enough. And this church had works, and they were even good works, but they were incomplete works, and they had holes in them. So if you were to put it, what are the holes? They have a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. There was a hole in their character. They needed to wake up. That was a hole in their conscience. They needed to strengthen what would remain. That was a hole in their congregation. The hole was the faithful ones. They needed to remember and hold fast. There was a, hold, a hole in their commitment to the Word of God. And so I may be speaking to someone today who's got a hole in your character. And you know it. God has lovingly used my injury to point out holes in mine. And maybe you have a hole in your conscience or in your commitment to the Word of God. Maybe you feel like you have a hole in your parenting, your marriage. Your By the way, just side note. From what I've talked to parents, I think every parent feels like they have a hole in their parenting most of their life. <laughs> so if you feel like you have a hole in your parenting... You probably do. And we need each other. 
to strengthen us with that. But maybe you feel like you have a hole in your marriage or your money or your character in every other area of life. You feel a little bit like this guy. I have a picture for you. You're trying to stop all these holes. You're like, everything's falling apart. It's not working too well for him. It can be absolutely overwhelming to come to church and hear about one more thing that you have to do. And that's why I love, I love this verse. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says, My God will supply every need of yours. Do you remember that? Guess what? That word supply is the same Greek word as complete. When he says here, your works are incomplete. Did you see that? Your works are not complete before me. He says, they're not enough. They're not filled up. And God says, and I can fill them up. And so we depend on God. Third, appreciate the gospel. Appreciate the gospel. I think we appreciate the gospel best when we're sharing it. And so let's not pass over the warning in this text. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night. We appreciate the gospel best when we're sharing it. And I've actually seen, uh, well, just one, one story for you. There was one time in an agnostic, I was going through a personal time where I was struggling with my faith, trying to understand just a bunch of different questions and questions are good to wrestle through. And an agnostic came up to me and he just like slamming and tearing down the Bible. And I was having questions about the Bible and questions about faith. And he's slamming and tearing it down. And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> and I was having a full-on debate with this guy about the truthfulness of the Word of God and why we could trust it. And I'm like, who is this guy? Like yesterday you're struggling and now you're standing behind it. What is going on here? Well, when we're sharing the gospel is when we appreciate it the most. And I want to tell you what, it is so good for you spiritually to tell others about Jesus. It is so good for you spiritually to talk to someone who doesn't know much about the Lord. It's so good for you spiritually to sit across from a guy who just asked you, are you telling me that my baptism means nothing? And you go, ah. inwardly. I didn't do that outwardly. I said, quick, pass me another Rice Krispie treat. <laughs> It is so good for you to have those questions. And we're going to hear from Phil sometime too, his testimony of the questions that he had. I loved it. I wasn't planning on calling you out, Phil, but I just did. I love you. Uh, we're, we're going through this study, and it says, okay, you're born a sinner. I'm like, yes, I agree with that. You're born a sinner, and if you die in your sin, you go to hell. A natural question that flows out of that was, what happens to babies? Ooh, guess what? When you have to work through that on your own, and it's not just a, a note in a sermon, all of a sudden it strengthens your faith, and you learn to appreciate the gospel. Okay. Today, Calvary Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant is celebrating 75 years of gospel ministry, and next year we hope to celebrate 50 years of gospel ministry in this building. But last year, a group of us men went and gathered stuff from a church that had been around less than 50 years, and they were closing their doors. As I speak, there are 15 churches out of 94 in our fellowship that are without pastors. God says the branch that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. And we need to know that God has not guaranteed that we will be around for 50 years. So one of the things when we look at grace, he says here, he says, watch out, wake up, or I will come and remove your lampstand from you. God can remove your pastor. God can close the doors of a church, of this church of any church. And sometimes God removes the pastor because the pastor is the problem. And that can happen. 
In 2005, a show came on that I loved to watch. It's called It Takes a Thief, and I realized there's an older version. But the premise was that people did not know how vulnerable they were until they got robbed. Two ex-cons teamed up to rob houses and then install proper security. But something that they would do to every house is just a few weeks after the security was installed, they'd come back, and they would warn them. They're like, we're going to come back in two or three weeks and see if we can break back into your house after you have all the security. And it's amazing <laughs> how many houses they got back into. And you know, they'd go grab a ladder, and they'd set it up, and they'd climb up the second story, and they'd lift up the screen, and they'd lift up the window because the window's left unlocked. They had all the security in the world, but they had gotten lazy, and they were broken back into. Happy is the church who stays alert and enjoys God as Father instead of fearing Him as thief. And then the fourth thing is we walk by faith. We walk by faith. It says, to the one who conquers, Scripture says that this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It says, to the one who conquers, will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Of course, you should be wondering, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? It looks like you can be brought, blotted out of the book of life. I just have a long quote here for you to help explain it. We're asking the question, is there a warning here in Revelation 3.5 that the believer might lose his salvation? I don't think so. It would appear that God's book of life contains the names of all the living, the wicked as well as the righteous. Now I want you to turn to that verse so you know what I'm talking about. Psalm 69. This is the only verse we'll look at in this text. But this is going to be helpful because you're going to have some time where you're going to be discipling someone or sharing the gospel with them. And they come across Revelation chapter 3. I will blot his name out of the book of life. And they're terrified and they live in fear. And they go, am I going to lose my salvation? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? What if, I've, what if I've gone too far from God and I can no longer be saved? I'm blotted out of the book of life. Psalm 69, verse 28. This is page 485 in your Bible. says this. Well, we'll start in verse 27. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Page 483 says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And so the psalmist here says there's a book of the living and there is the righteous. And they're two separate categories. Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 suggest that the names of the saved are written in the book from the foundation of the world. That is, before they had done anything good or bad. By God's grace, they have been chosen in Christ before the beginning of time. Do we have more to that? Jesus told his disciples to rejoice because their names were written in heaven. It is not likely that Jesus would contradict himself in this important matter. We are enrolled in heaven because we have been born again. And no matter how disobedient a child may be, he or she cannot be unborn. Final line. As unbelievers die, their names are removed from this book. Thus, at the final judgment, the book contains only the names of believers. It then becomes the Lamb's book of life because only those saved by the Lord Jesus Christ have their names written in it. All others have been blotted out, something that God would never do for any true child of God. It is the book of life, and lost sinners, Scripture says, are dead. And so I hope that helps you to answer the question. Scripture tells us to walk by faith. So the church of Sardis needed to wake up and the question that obviously is begging for us to answer is the church of Sardis, of Sardis was asleep, are we? Or are you? 
He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I actually want to read for you Psalm, Isaiah 51. Go ahead and turn there with me, Isaiah 51. This is an encouragement to me. You're going to keep hearing this refrain of the need for us to depend on the Lord when we're coming to him. Sorry, Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, this is page 611. Let's close with these words before we sing our final song. Isaiah 50, verse 1, says, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce of which I sent her away? Or where, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, your iniquities, for your iniquities you were sold, and your transgressions, for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why then... When I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or do I have no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word, him who is weary, to strengthen the ones who are weak, to strengthen the godly. Morning by morning, he awakes me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. And listen, for every church, and if you know a church right now that you're like, this church is asleep, they're dying. They're about to close their door. Pray that. The Lord God helps me. Pray that God would help them. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who among you fears the Lord, church, and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. You have made, you have from my hand, and you will lie down in torment. Father God, I pray that all those who are in here would walk, that walk in darkness. Maybe there's a darkness in their marriage. Maybe there's a darkness in their personal walk with you. Maybe there's darkness in their character. Maybe there's darkness in their conduct. Maybe there's darkness just in, in their soul. There's a fear. There's an anxiety. There's a depression, whatever it may be. I pray that those who walk in darkness and have no light would trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Help us as a church to trust on you, God, that you would draw us and cause us to be a church that's not plateauing, that's a, that's a growing and thriving and maturing and reproducing church. That when we're confronted with issues that we don't know the answers to, we'd say, I don't have a great intellectual debate, but I have the word of God and I trust in the name of the Lord. That we would not rely on our programs, but that we would rely on Christ. That we would not simply rely on something outside of us, but trust in Christ to change us. And Lord, of course, that starts first and foremost with trust for our salvation. 
Perhaps there's someone who's come today, they've gone to church all their life, or maybe they've, they've grown up in church, and they're trusting in church. They're trusting their attendance to get them to heaven. Let them who walk in darkness trust in Christ, who shed his blood so that we might have life and receive him today. God, I thank you that when you reveal to us our flesh, you do not simply say fight flesh with flesh, but fight flesh with the Spirit. And so I pray you'd strengthen those who are weak, probably who will never tell me. Strengthen that soul who right now is struggling. May they trust in you. May they call out to you. May they pray even when they don't know how to pray. And may they even pray, God, I don't want to pray and I don't know how to pray and I haven't prayed forever. Please, God, help me. And may we be thriving for your honor and glory. Continue to teach us. Wake us up. Wake up our churches and our fellowship. Revive us, O God, that your people may praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.